This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books and Environmental Studies. Today I'm speaking with John Markoff about his new book, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand, published by Penguin Press. John has covered technology in Silicon Valley since 1977 and was a part of the team of New York Times journalists who won the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting. Whole Earth is a fascinating biography of Stuart Brand, a man whose life trajectory explains how the Bay Area turned from an enclave of artists, beats, and hippies to the tech-oriented Silicon Valley that would birth the personal computer. Brand was the editor of the Whole Earth Catalog a magazine that would profoundly influence a generation of artists and entrepreneurs. It is impossible to understand the genesis of the Valley without also understanding the life of Stuart Brand. John, thank you so much for joining us today on the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. So as standard with New Books Network, the first question I'd like to ask, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and why you chose to write a biography about Stuart Brand. So, uh, I actually uh, grew up in what would become Silicon Valley. I grew up in Palo Alto, California. Um, I uh, I went away to to school and graduate school for about eight years, um, from sixty seven to seventy seven, ten years, seventy seven. Um, and while I was gone, this thing called Silicon Valley happened, and I spent my professional career writing about Silicon Valley. And you know, I I didn't meet Brand until. Uh, long after he had left Silicon Valley, he was here a couple of times uh, before Silicon Valley was named Silicon Valley. Once when he was a Stanford student and once when he started the Whole Earth Catalog. Um, But I've always been interested in the puzzle of why Silicon Valley happened, where it happened and when it happened. And that was one of the reasons I was interested in Brand. I mean, Brand, the subtitle of my book is Many Lives. And one of the things about Brand is that he has... uh, been a person who is not stuck to one career, one sort of focus. He's been a person who's followed a set of curiosities over the entirety of his life. And, I, you know, I found myself, um, I'm a decade younger than him. Uh, I, I uh, 
I actually first ran into him shortly after I became a reporter in 1981. And I, I feel like I've sort of bumped into things about a, a, repeatedly about a decade after he did. So the, the arc of his life was interesting to me. And that was one of the principal reasons why I decided to write about him. Was he someone that you had always wanted to write a biography of? So, you know, I, I spent 29 years at the New York Times. Uh, at a certain point, I decided to leave. And just when I was thinking about leaving, um, a person who uh, is a protege and friend of Brands, Kevin Kelly, who was once the editor of Wired Magazine and is a friend of mine, uh, called me up and said, hey, you know, Stuart's been thinking about writing an autobiography for a number of years, and he just decided not to, but I think somebody should write a biography of him, and I think it should be you. And I thought about that, and I went over and talked to Stuart and uh, I was looking for a project. You know, I was sort of, what was I going to do after I'd been a, a, a newspaper reporter for 45 years? And all of the things that, uh, you know, he had done in his life were interesting to me. So it sounded like it'd be, it'd be fun. Took a little bit long. I did, actually, I didn't know what to expect. I've written, this is my sixth book, but I've always written books previously, um, you know, because I had a day job to go back. I've written them quickly. You know, I can write a book in six months or I used to be able to, not anymore. Uh, but I spent I spent from the end of 20, um, 2016 until, I, you know, I finished this book early, but, but COVID de delayed it. So sometime in early 2021, I finished this book. So it was four and a half, five years. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Brand, so much, so much happened in, has happened in his life. He's still still alive and kicking, still doing doing things. I was wondering if you could just give a, you know, as much as possible, a little capsule biography of of some of the things that he's been involved with, just to give listeners a bit of a sense of how interesting this man is. Yeah. Okay. So um, let's see the, the quick narrative of Brand's life. Uh, he he grew up um, in a midwestern town, Rockford, Illinois, about an hour from Chicago. Um, not a particularly interesting town, a manufacturing center. Um, he but he was he summered because his his family sort of had upper class roots, although his his parents were independent. Um, but he summered in central Michigan at Higgins Lake. And uh, that was very much a, a, a parallel to a kind of the way Hemingway grew up, growing up in the suburbs of Chicago and summering at Walloon Lake. And so he had that kind of what he calls a free range childhood um, outdoors. Um, he, his uh, his brother went, went, they both went to, both he and his brother went to Exeter and then his brother went to Stanford and uh, Brand was, uh, his, his older brother was his hero. He followed his brother to Stanford. Um, after Stanford, he went to the, the U.S. Army for a couple of years. He became a lieutenant, but he um, he didn't go on into Vietnam. Uh, he could have gone to Vietnam. He chose not to re-enlist. Re He'd fallen in love with North, North Beach and the beat scene in San Francisco. He was a senior at Stanford. So he, he, he settled down um, in North Beach in 1962. And, you know, the, I think the, one of the keys to understanding Brand, I mean, he calls himself upper class, but I don't think of him as upper class in a traditional sense of great wealth. The interesting thing is he got just enough money from his family not to take a day job. So it allowed him to pursue this bohemian lifestyle. He initially wanted to become a photographer and set out to, to work as a photographer, but he, his parents would send him money as needed. And, it, and you know, he was not living a, a wealthy lifestyle, but you know he was renting a twenty-dollar apartment in San Francisco. You could get a twenty-dollar apartment at that point in time in North Beach, and uh, he 
stumbled onto a sort of American Indian culture in the Warm Springs Indian Reservation in Oregon on a photographic assignment. And that really sort of shaped his view uh, of this Native American culture that was very different than his middle class upbringing. And he came away with a, a sense of uh, their respect for and their care for the land that they lived on. And he came back to the Bay Area. He did this, uh, he produced this multimedia slideshow called American Needs Indians. Um, he he uh, ran into and, and hung out with the pranksters for a couple of years. And that led him to become the empresario who created this uh, three-day, uh, the, the pranksters had held this series of events called acid tests that involved uh, rock music and LSD, and he organized the largest of them. It was a three-day event, and it was really an, a significant event in the sense that it was the first time the 10,000 hippies who were living in the barrier realized that there were 10,000 hippies, and it had this form of catalyzing a community. It led directly to the Summer of Love and uh, and to Haight-Ashbury. But Brand... Um, he sort of broke away from that just when it was sort of taking off. And he ended up first deciding, well, not deciding, he began exploring uh, the back to the land movement, which was happening in the, in the, uh, uh, the early, uh, the, 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 the late six, the mid sixties, basically 67, 66. Um, and he went and helped some of his friends found a commune in New Mexico, decided he really didn't like rural, rural life. And he ended up back in Menlo Park, California, where he decided to, to settle because he saw something that was going on there. You know, Silicon Valley wasn't named until 71, but Brand showed up there in 66, 67. And all of the forces that were um, going to emerge as Silicon Valley, uh, he was alert to, which is really quite remarkable. I mean, he has this sort of sixth sense over a long period of time of showing up at the beginning of a, important trends, events, and things like that. And that was, I think, the most significant. Um, he, he, he started on one project, which was an educational technology fail. That project, that failed. And then he came up with the idea of the Whole Earth Catalog, um, which initially was supposed to be a, a truck store, literally a truck that was going to drive around to his friends' communes and take them to useful tools and books. He immediately realized his friends didn't have any money. That wasn't going to work. And so he pivoted to this catalog and the catalog touched the nerve and it resonated with my generation, the baby boomers. Um, ultimately in three years, they sold 3 million copies about in 1972 after he shut it down, it won the, um, the uh, national book award. Um, but he was overwhelmed by the success of the catalog. His marriage was failing. Um, he basically then two years later started to restart the catalog, but with um, a magazine called the Coalition Quarterly, which he ran on and off for a decade. Um, and then after that, you know, he wrote, he became, he became an author. He wrote a series of books. Uh, he wrote a book about the media lab. He wrote an important book about architecture called how buildings learn. And then in about 2009, he wrote a, a, a book uh, called, um, a whole earth discipline, which broke him from the, the, the environmental movement that he'd been instrumental in, in creating. And then after that, um, he's been sort of consistently involved with something called the Long Now Foundation, which is an effort to get people to engage in long-term thinking and still active at the moment. He's working on a book on the importance of maintenance for civilization. So that's the, that's the short form missing many of uh, the detours that Brand took. I think what's, what's really striking about Brand's life and various careers uh, is how he 
was always seemed to be this kind of traveler in left wing circles, you might say. Uh, but he was the kind of entrepreneur capitalist. Uh, what what was his kind of political ideology, and how did it how did how did he you know like was he just a he wasn't a standard hippie a standard beat he there was always something a, a little a little different about him. Yeah, you know I would I I agree with you. He was always the entrepreneur. I I think he I I would think it's not correct to call him a capitalist. I mean the only thing he ever did. Um, that was for profit was he helped start this group called the Global Business Network, which is a consulting group. And he wasn't really an active member in that. So he saw he's been consistent and always doing things on a, a nonprofit basis. Um, he never got particularly wealthy, but he was, you're right, entrepreneurial all the way through. And um, he was always he's always been pro cap pro capitalist. Um, so he's, he was, you know, he uh, going all the way back. He's had an antipathy toward communism. Um, you know, he grew up kind of in a standard American anti-communist scene, although his parents were liberals. You know, there was there was definitely a, a, a framing of American liberalism that was anti-communism that was ascended during during the 50s and 60s in America. I mean, he, you know, he was briefly infatuated with Ayn Rand um, in, at Stanford, um, but very soon broke with Rand. And, you know, he joked with me uh, at one point while we were... Um, we were talking about what his politics were, that he thought of himself as a conservative, and he calls himself a conservative, although he's a conservative who can't read the Wall Street Journal because he so uh, abhors their editorial page. So what kind of a conservative is that? And I think that the, the arc that I tracked, you know, he was libertarian with probably a very small L when he started the catalog. It was basically, let's see what we can do without government. Um but this was in terms of communes and, and do-it-yourself stuff, um, back-to-land stuff. Um, then in the 70s, he was involved in Jerry Brown's first administration, uh, governor of California. And he came away from that just one year he spent working with Brown, feeling that there was a value of good government. And so I would put him, if you put him on, wanted to put him somewhere on the political spectrum, I would put him close to Jerry Brown. And so Brown doesn't fit neatly into uh, uh, all of those uh, categories, you know, for example, I, you know, in terms of the Silicon Valley debate, I would not consider Brand to be a neoliberal. I would be, I would, you know, he believes in capitalism with guardrails and in his book, Whole Earth Discipline, although he doesn't bang on it, you can clearly see that, um, you know, he thinks that the climate change is the existential problem that we need to pursue politically. And the only way we're going to get there is with strong governments. He re- recognizes that. So, Somewhere on the liberal spectrum, closer to Jerry Brown is where I'd put him, I guess, at the end of the conversation. <laughs> He's friends with Jerry, too, still. Yeah, that's um, that's that's very interesting. And I think that, you know, part of his outlook might be, uh, like like you mentioned to an allude in the book, his childhood upbringing in the, the 1950s when just anti-communism was so widespread that it was just, uh, you know, the air that people were breathing. Um, but you mentioned a few other things, and I think I talking, going a little bit about uh, his experience uh, doing these early festival plannings, something very important, and you begin the story talking about him on an LSD trip. Uh, What was Brand's relationship to drugs, uh, his experiences with them, and their influences on him, and what sort of ultimately led him to turn away from drugs and, let's say, towards technology or other tools? Yeah, Um, that that is the arc. I mean, he really sort of uh, I think at the end of the 60s, he he sort of walked away from psychedelics 
and he walked toward digital technology at that point, uh, consciously. Um, and, you know, the, all of those things were swirling on the peninsula during the 60s. They, the thing they shared, I mean, there, were, there was a lot of stuff going on. Psychedelics sort of filtered into the culture. Rand was part of that. I mean, um, if you trace sort of uh, the, the, the impact of psychedelics on the culture, it started as uh, as a uh, not as a cult, but as as, a, as an experimental activity for a small group of people on the peninsula on the west coast. There was something on the east coast as well in the 1950s. There was this remarkably curious folk uh, folk hero by the name of Al Hubbard, who was going up and down the west coast in the 1950s, introducing to people to LSD. Um, and he bumped into uh, some engineers on the peninsula who basically took up the study of the drug, um, believing that uh, LSD would enhance creativity. And they wanted to prove that. So they set up an organization called the International Foundation for Advanced Study in Menlo Park in 1962. And Stuart Brand was one of the first subjects. You had to pay $500 to take this very intense uh, experience. And what was happening through that, I mean, it started as a defined experiment on mind expansion or the creation of creativity. Um, there are all these other threads around uh, augmenting human intelligence, like the early computer stuff that were going on in the peninsula. And they were sort of in, interwoven and there were religious movements. There was, there was Est later on. All this stuff was happening. And drugs basically, in the midst of that, filtered out into the into the culture. And by the, the late 1960s, when I was in, um, in college, it had become a recreational drug, but that's not how it started. So Brand followed that arc, um, you know, the, 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 the rise of the, the Grateful Dead in the San Francisco music scene was very tied to psychedelics. Um, and then in, you know, he, he had various, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it you know, he had various bouts of depression, severe depression, and the, the drugs seemed to make that worse. Um, at a certain point in the late 1960s, I mean, Kesey, who had been sort of this, uh, you know, this vocal voice uh, for LSD and changing society, renounced LSD. Um, they had the, um, the acid test gradu graduation in San Francisco, which Brand was part of, um, and he literally in 69, I think was the last time he took LSD, he walked away from it feeling that he'd gotten everything he could get out of LSD. I mean, he'd, there were points where he was a huge advocate of LSD for giving you sort of the ability to see the world in new ways. And he decided that, that you know, there were, there were limits and it was time to move on. Kesey had gone through this thing where Brand took him to see this advanced computer system that Doug Engelbart was developing that would be sort of the, the forerunner to modern computing. And Kesey came away shaking his head and saying, well, this is the next thing after LSD. And I think that was, uh, that was, Brand wrote this, uh, this seminal article about the future of computing in Rolling Stone magazine. And that's how he, he, he began the article with that assertion that computing was the next big thing after psychedelics. Um, and, and uh, um, you know, he, he, he doesn't um, deny any of his, that period in the sixties, but I think he moved past it. Yeah, can you talk about that uh, experience with Doug Engelbart and just his influence? And I believe it was called the mother of all demos. Yeah, yeah. That um, uh, uh, Stephen Levy wrote a piece uh, in which he describes as the mother of all demos. So Engelbart uh, was an engineer who'd uh, been uh, he got his graduate degree at University of California in Berkeley. He worked at uh, 
NASA um, in the wind tunnel as an electronics technician. Then he got a job developing uh, the forerunner to semiconductors at SRI. But he he had this experience, this almost religious experience of uh, where he decided that his life calling was to take these ideas that he'd read about from a man by, by the name of Van Ever Bush, um, who had proposed in the 1940s this machine called Memex, which was sort of an infinite, an infinite library. And, he, and, and um, Engelbart decided that those kinds of tools, which he, in 1962, basically asserted would augment human intelligence, the idea that small groups of knowledge workers could collaborate more efficiently, he decided to build that system. So it was really quite ironic. On one side of campus, you had John McCarthy, who had coined the term artificial intelligence or AI, working to build a machine to replace humans. On the other side of campus, at the same time, Doug Engelbart set out to build a machine that would augment human intelligence, so AI and IA. And Brand had the advantage in 67 of getting close to Engelbart, and he was very influenced by Engelbart. He had also been influenced before that by Buckminster Fuller, who, who believed that if you wanted to change the world, you gave someone a tool and taught them how to use it. Um, and um, Engelbart, of course, was at work on the universal tool, and Brand could see that. And so the, um, the original whole Earth catalog in 1968 was subtitled Access to Tools and was very uh, sympathetic to the, to the power of computing at a point where, you know, the, the, in, the, in the 50s and 60s, computers had seen like oppressive machines and surveillance tools, and they sort of flipped that idea on its head. And the idea of a personal computer is a computer you could control and would, when, which would, would, you know, assist you in all kinds of ways. So uh, Brand captured that early on in Essential, and he took those ideas and embedded them in the catalog, and they got out to the they got out to the to the white to my generation. You know, an entire generation was was affected with that sort of worldview. Pro technology, not digital technology, it was a little early, but pro technology that the tools when you had them would be useful. The through line of Brand's personality, despite whatever he was doing, was that he always seemed to be reading books as many books as possible. Uh, what's the thing I, I found very interesting about the book is how much you talk is how much you discuss Brand's various intellectual influences from Buckminster Fuller to Gregory Bateson. Uh, who are some of the key thinkers that inspired Brand's ways of thinking? Well, so um, initially, I have to mention his mother. His mother was a, a voracious reader. The, the home was full of books. Um, she was a, a big advocate of humans in space, which I think it influenced Brand later on. So from an early age, uh, he was a bookworm. Um, the, one of his uh, early girlfriends, uh, who was also uh, close to Kesey, describes the first time he showed up uh, visiting Ken Kesey, um, who was, of course, this uh, by then famous author who'd written a couple of national bestsellers. Um, she, he drove across this bridge and he, in a VW microbus, and when he got out, she realized the, the, the bus was full of books, and he was very serious uh, uh, and, and he still, ha I mean, he has this remarkable library that he has given me a tour of. And what's most remarkable, it's clear that he's read the books in his library and can uh, recite from them. And, and, you know, most of his thinking has come um, come from things that, that he read. Um, yeah, he went from being influenced initially by Fuller. Um, uh, 
even earlier on um, at Stanford, he was a, a student, um, a biology student, and his senior thesis advisor was Paul Ehrlich. So he fell under Ehrlich's spell on the population bomb ideas for some time, although he broke with Ehrlich eventually on that. He's taken a more optimist, you know, Ehrlich has remained a doomsayer and Brand is uh, is much more optimistic now. So, you know, he stayed under um, Fuller's sort of systems approach to the world for a number of years. And then he'd met actually Bates and earlier, but he came back and he read uh, Bates and Steps Toward an Ecology of Mind. And that was uh, uh, extremely influential on him. And it sort of led him to, to you know, talk about the importance of coevolution because coevolution sort of speaks to the arc of time. Um, and that became a framing idea of his to, to this day. Um, other people, you know, he was thinking about architecture uh, when he was working at the MIT Media Lab. He, he fell under uh, Marvin Minsky's uh, sort of view on the way people should collaborate in buildings. And that uh, got him interested in uh, what he called low road and high road architecture. He wrote this book called How Buildings Learn that was very, um, had a, a, a big um, impact uh, on on the architectural community. Um, this is buildings over time. And he was sort of an advocate, not of perfect buildings like Steve Jobs' perfect circle in uh, Cupertino, but buildings that evolve as they're used for different purposes. Um, and for a while, he was very interested, influenced by Amory Lovins, who's a, a you know militant uh, envir environmentalist, activist, uh, physicist, um, and then he broke with Lovins on 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 uh, his ideas on uh, nuclear power. He's gone back and forth on activism. Um, there, you know, there were points when he he was uh, early on. He he did something called Life Raft Earth, which was sort of under Ehrlich's influence, which is an, about about world hunger and. And um, then um, he broke away and decided that activism didn't yield the political activism in the in the sort of the typical sense didn't didn't yield the results and so walked away from that. Um, you know, lots of uh, people like George Church now, um, you know, who advocates the the use of uh, advanced uh, genetic uh, engineering technologies to protect against climate change. I think are sort of significant influences at the moment. Obviously, Stuart, since, you know, even his childhood, as you talk about, has always been concerned with environmental causes and issues. And that's you see that with his Project America Needs Indians uh, as well. Uh, but, you know, how would you sort of describe his view towards the environment and how do his thinking and approaches differ from maybe certain standard environmental approaches? Yeah, I mean, there at points in American history, there have been sort of different threads in the in in, in the environmental um, movement. Um, so on the on the one side, there is this sort of pro wilderness view of you know uh, the John Muir approach to um, you know take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footsteps. Um, and Brand is not in that camp. Um, you know, from his time with the American Indians, he believes that we're the caretakers and the curators of the environment were responsible for protecting it. And um, so, and that, you know, that, that there is a thread of American environmental uh, um, or a camp that he's very much a part of. Um, it, it came to him early on when he was eight, he found a copy of outdoor life magazine. They were pushing something called um, uh, the outdoor life magazine conservation pledge 
which uh, he can still recite at age 83 uh, from memory. Uh, and it deals with protecting um, our resources, our air, our land. And, um, you know, that's why, you know, he doesn't fit well in the, in the, modern, uh, in the modern context of American conservatism, um, which really thinks nothing about the environment. Um, he, the environmental, the, you know, the, the, the protection of the environment, our role in it is the prism through which he does, he does everything. And so that's been, you're right, the through line through, through everything. And that, that pledge is the, the reason I don't call him a zealot. I mean, I think of a zealot as a shapeshifter and Brand has done all these different things, but there is um, some sort of constant worldview that he's taken with him. After the whole earth catalog, you know, he's, He's he's worked on so many things that I, I don't think we'll be able to uh, discuss discuss everything in detail. I think if people are interested in Brand, they should definitely go and read the book. And there's many great interviews, uh, one in particular that you've done with him on uh, on YouTube, available on YouTube. Uh, but w- what are some things that he worked on after the Whole Earth Catalog? Um, you mentioned the Global Business Network and working with Jerry Brown, but things besides that, like the Well and uh, yeah, the Long Now Foundation. That's right. So let's see. You know, often ideas would bubble for a long time before they came to the surface, and the well is a good example of that. Um, I found, found the first uh, mention of that idea in his journal in 1968. He didn't start the well until 1985, and when he first, uh, you know, the well stands for Whole Earth Electronic Link, and uh, with an apostrophe instead of an E. Um, and he originally called it, and I'm not going to be able to say. The original idea was E-I-E-I-O, and that education, let's see, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but that, that showed him his journal very early. He ended up, um, there. you know, there was a lot of activity. This was before the emergence of, of certainly the internet, but there was a lot of networking activity around the country beginning in the late 1970 with systems like CompuServe and The Source and Prodigy. And uh, then uh, there were these systems called mo- uh, uh, bulletin board systems that allowed individuals to connect their personal computers to the to this telephone through the telephone network to other computers. And so he created this thing called the Well in Sausalito, which was basically a, an electronic salon. It was hybrid. The people who became the Well uh, devotees met in person. Um, originally, there was. A, a charge for connect time because there was no network to connect with. And the, the, the well was an effort to create a, a, a virtual community, early, early effort to create a virtual community. And it was, it, it found some success. Um, the, the, the grateful dead had a, some followers called the deadheads and a lot of the deadheads used the well to stay in touch. And there was kind of a, a you know, writers participated in the well technology writers showed up there. So, uh, it had its moment, um, but uh, you know, after after the Whole Earth Catalog, the next big project was well, the next project was uh, a new games festival. He he created this idea of um, games that didn't have a, a zero sum uh, uh, sort of outcome, games that everybody could win win at, and um, that was a movement that he successfully created. And then he kind of backed away from it because he really enjoyed fighting, uh, you know, being really, uh, you know, not, not killing fighting, but, but, uh, you know, he was a vicious boffer. If you know what a boffing sword is, this kind of uh, uh, nylon thing that replaces a sword that you can whack people with. And um, he, he invented a number of games where, where, 
you know, they weren't separated by gender. Everybody could play. And that became, that became a, a successful movement for a while. There was a, a sort of a new games movement in the country, um, sort of at the tail end of the hippie era. Then he spent a lot of time on Coevolution Quarterly. Um, what else to single out? He really spent, um, you know, the Global Business Network, was uh, this uh, this organ uh, this consulting organization that took ideas that um, his his colleague Peter Schwartz, who had worked for Shell, um, had about um, uh, about strategy and planning for corporations, which involved scenarios. Um, and uh, Brand was not a key member of that, but he was. He ran a book club for it for a number of years, and he would show up and and work when they were making presentations to corporations and. You know, the Global Business Network rise, rose and fell with uh, with the internet, with the dot com era. Um, they did very well because many corporations were trying to figure out how to deal with this new thing called the internet, and they would come in and help them think about it. And then when the dot com collapse happened, the corporations didn't have extra money to spend on such uh, frivolous things as consultants, and so that they they were eventually bundled up. But it helped Brand for a while. It gave him sort of a uh, his first sort of uh, you know, uh, his, his first income, uh, you know, where he didn't sort of have to scuffle as a freelancer for a long time. And then after that, um, he got involved with uh, Danny Hillis in uh, Hillis had this, this idea about uh, building uh, this mechanical clock to help people think in the long term, a clock that would tick just once a year, but would run for 10,000 years and the cuckoo would come out every century or so. Um, and, uh, you know, because they got Jeff Bezos interested in this idea, the clock, the, the sort of a full scale prototype of the clock is uh, almost complete uh, in Southwest Te Texas at the southern edge of uh, Bezos's spaceport down there on a huge track of uninhabited land in a 6,000 foot mountain. And, you know, it's been quite controversial. A lot of people feel like this is like this plaything for a very rich man. Um, if you go see it, it really is one of the wonders of the world. There's this hollowed out cavern, uh, this large sort of 500 foot deep tube out of uh, hollowed out of rock with a staircase around it. And the, the clock is designed so that you can, uh, it, it will keep time because of it, the differential in air pressure and the movement of the sun. But if you want it to tell time, you have to wind it. So halfway up on the staircase is a platform and the visitors to the clock will have to wind the clock in the kind of conventional way. Uh, and uh, it'll be complete, I think, in the next year or two. Um, but the organization has, uh, you know, it's actually it's built, built a lively organization in San Francisco. The Interval uh, uh, Bar is the company headquarters. It's next to this uh, vegan restaurant in San Francisco called Greens. And it's probably the most interesting bar in San Francisco. They have weekly events there uh, and they have monthly events at the SF Jazz Center. And so they've got this sort of thriving um, organization that they've they've created out of that spun um, a project that he and his wife have pursued for the last decade called Revive and Restore, which is also controversial because George Church is one of their collaborators. And Church, of course, has proposed the idea of bringing back the extinct woolly mammoth. And that's conjured up visions of Jurassic Park for, for people who've gone to Hollywood movies. I actually think it's a little unfair. I, you know, I think the te technologies are not there yet for bringing back extinct animals, um, although they are going to, they are starting to bring back the chestnut, which is really quite remarkable, you know, something that a, a, a tree that, that covered America at one point and then was, uh, went, that went away. The, the, I think that would be remarkable. They're also um, working on technologies that would um, 
enhance the ability of coral to survive bleaching as a result of climate change. And so they're doing a, a variety of things like you know, that that really gets at that. You know, the, the first sentence in the whole Earth catalog of 68 was Brand's pronouncement that we are as gods and we might as well get good at it. And, you know, the Revive and Restore is, Revive and Restore is an organizational expression of that idea that you know, we have responsibility for our, our role in this world. I think those are the sort of recent high notes. So, yeah, you, you've obviously met Brand before. Um, I spoke with him several times, spoken with him several times. And, you know, in addition to researching his life, what, what's your sort of, you know, general sense of him? Like, what is what what uh, what makes him the person he is? What makes yeah. him tick? Well, so, yeah, that, that was something I tried to get at. I mean, he clearly was a child of the Midwest. I mean, he came at, he came to Stanford as this hyper-intellectual kind of, um, how would I describe him? I mean, he was, he was, if you've ever said, you wouldn't have, this one, you wouldn't have seen the television show Leave it to Beaver, perhaps, but, the, you know, just very middle-class, uh, middle-American kid. And who was very eager and interested and intellectual, and you know he ran into the counterculture, which he helped create, and went through that. But he kept this sort of uh, interest in ideas, and he also, you know, for a while I wanted to title the book um, "Floating Upstream" because there's a bit of Brand family wisdom that if you toss a brand in the river, they'll float upstream, and that's really quite true about him. I mean. I was a decade behind him. I was part of that same sort of counterculture world that he was, but at the other end of it, he was at the very beginning. I was more toward the middle or toward the end. And I was sort of uh, in college and afterwards a classic new left person, um, which I kind of walked away from, uh, you know, when I became a reporter, but in sort of my conversations with Brand, um, I, you know, he, it was really quite refreshing actually, because, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't look at the world in the sort of the cookie cutter way that a progressive person works from. He looks at the world from outside the box. And I would often have to sort of stop myself and sort of put myself in his frame, frame of reference. And it usually is a, it's a thoughtful one. Um, one of the things, you know, he's been called a futurist. He winces when people call him a futurist because he thinks of himself as a pragmatist. And the idea is that you iterate and if new facts arise, you adjust your worldview of that. And he has done that. I mean, that was, you know, to, to the dismay of people uh, in certain parts of the environmental movement, he reframed his view on nuclear power, for example. And that's actually become this interesting discussion point. I think many people in the environmental movement still uh, oppose nuclear power, but many of them now oppose it not because of the danger of radioactive waste, but because they think nuclear power won't come quickly enough, which is a very different framing than the debate had before. Brand still, you know, he, he's still cautiously pro-nuclear. Um, the idea is that we need these, um, these uh, uh, non-fossil fuel sources of energy now. And uh, he, he, he believes that nuclear power is one of the quickest ways to, to get there. So that's it. That's an interesting debate. Uh, but the idea of someone who's thoughtful, who can step outside the box and look at the problems from a different um, direction is, is really what comes away from any conversation you have with Stuart. What's your sort of sense of his current status or, uh, you know, how people in the Valley think of him? Do people think of him as this person that 
very much was, you know, one of the founding fathers of the Valley yeah. or is he, you know, a, a sort of a forgotten, uh, a, a forgotten yeah. explorer. It's really, it's a little bit of both, I think. So I was kind of struck after Donald Trump was elected, the zeitgeist on Silicon Valley nationally really shifted rapidly from Silicon Valley can do no wrong to Silicon Valley can do no right over the space of a couple of years. And in 2017, there were two books that appeared, Jonathan Taplin's uh, Move Fast and Break Things and Franklin Foyer's uh, World Without Mind. They were both sort of devastating critiques of the nightmare that had been brought by social media and what it was doing to democracy. And they both began with Stuart Brand. Well, that's interesting, you know, with biographical sketches, which is part of the lore. And I have reasons for thinking why I think that happened. But I also think it's wrong. Um, you know, what, what I came away, in particular from finding one of Stewart's journals that I hadn't read. I mean, I looked at his journals when I wrote an earlier book in, in 2000, and I went back to the journals. And then he gave me another one that for some reason he hadn't given to Stanford. It was a journal he kept in 2017 when he tried to do the educational technology fair and it didn't work. And a lot of it has to do with the clash of the people he worked with, which were some classic new leftists who came from San Francisco State. They just didn't get along. It, it left him with a lifelong bitter taste for the left, for the, what he, he considered the new left in a very ironic way, because he was very close to some of the people who were the founders of the, of the, the new left, as I saw people like Abby Hoffman was a close friend of his and things like that. So it was, it was not completely, but he really didn't like the Maoists. And there was a period when the American student left was influenced by those kinds of ideas. Um, but what I discovered was that uh, rather than being the, you know, the instigator of these Silicon Valley values, which is an idea you see floated a lot. I think of brand rather as an expression of the forces that were coming together to become the Valley. And, and so one of the things that came out of the, the, you know, the, the pre years of the Valley, that was the whole earth catalog. It was actually an expression of the forces that were creating the Valley rather than vice versa. And it was emblematic of this pro tools, um, optimistic view about technology that the Valley is associated with. But I think it was created with Stuart's contact with those things that were happening. I mean, semiconductors were there. Uh, Engelbart and, and, uh, and uh, McCarthy's labs were there. Uh, he could see all of that. And he was deeply influenced by that. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a different narrative than a, a lot now. So jump jump all the way forward so there are large white spaces i mean stuart brand has has largely been forgotten by many americans who weren't familiar with the whole earth catalog except you find that steve jobs gave this famous commencement address at sanford in 2005 where he credited um stuart with this worldview of stay hungry stay foolish at the end of his speech and people who saw that and they're you know they're hundreds of millions of people who saw that uh, know who Stuart Brand is. And then there's a young generation. You know, uh, there, are, there are people who are entrepreneurial and technical in the Valley who have sort of picked up on some of Brand's ideas. And so you do find these pockets of, of places, but it's, it's it, you know, he's not a, a he's not a, a, he's not a character like a Jobs or a Gates that everybody knows. Is there anything about else about Stuart's life that you know, we haven't covered or mentioned, you know, obviously there's tons of things that we can't cover or mention. People should read the book, of course. Uh, but anything else, any other burning things? Uh, well, uh, you know, Brand, going back to when he was a child, was a font of ideas. 
many bad ones, uh, many ideas that went nowhere. Um, but he nonstop sort of sort of notions. And every once in a while, he would have a great notion. And uh, that that's kind of a lesson, I think. And that's, you know, you can you can use Brand's life as kind of a ma manual of how to invent your own life. A lot of people use the whole earth catalog that way. My generation, I can't tell you how many people I ran into while I was working on this project. When I told them, they would say, oh, yeah, I stumbled across something in the whole earth catalog that sent my life in a right, you know, an orthogonal direction. That was really a, a, a common experience in, in my generation. Yeah, I'd be. You know, when I when I first learned about the whole Earth catalog, my first thought was like, "Oh, they should someone should really really make a new version of this." Uh, but you know, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, you know, in addition to to this, are are you? Uh, you know, obviously this book just came out, but are are you working on anything new? Any new books, uh, essays? That's interesting. I'm 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 at that point. Well, first of all, I'm doing a lot of talking about the book, so I'm sort of thinking about whether I have another book project. I, uh, to be very honest, I'm thinking about whether I want to try to write a biography of Engelbart. There is a biography of Engelbart, but I, I kind of like to write it. It's, it was written by someone and was sort of more in the form of a, um, an academic dissertation. And I think there needs to be a journalistic account of Engelbart's life. Um, it's not a happy story. So I'm kind of, you know, Engelbart in some ways is a, is a modern tragedy. I, I don't know if I want to write that kind of a book or not. I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. You, you said you've been on on tours and I'm wondering, you know, Brand is still alive, so he's still working and, and, and doing things. But, you know, what has the, the reception been? Uh, how have you have you been surprised yeah. by how people have interpreted Brand's life? Well, the, you know, I've done a, only a local tour. I've, I've, you know, I've appeared twice with Stuart in front of relatively, I think, several hundred people. I think there were three or four hundred people at the Jazz Center and then in Sausalito. I, I didn't want to sort of force Stuart to be, and he wouldn't because uh, he's busy doing his own stuff uh, into doing marketing with me. But the, the events I did with Stuart were really fun. Um, he's still all there. And, you know, he's got, I mean, I was telling a story at this SF Jazz Center, which is this fancy uh, uh, San Francisco auditorium, and he lit a dollar bill on fire to illustrate a point. And people were freaking out, me included, because, you know, it was going to set off the fire alarm. Uh, but he's still got that kind of prankster spirit about him. So that's fun. Um, you know, it's a difficult time to to uh, market a book, to go on book tour, because people are distracted. It's hard. Um, and and uh, so I haven't really, I haven't traveled to other areas of the country. And even like bookstores, that was, Kepler's is a local bookstore in Menlo Park. And they're still not having, it was right across the street from where the truck store was. So it would be an ideal place to have an event. And they're not having physical events yet. So I haven't gone to Kepler's yet. I'd like to do that. Uh, so, it, you know, um, it's been, I think, generally well-reviewed. Um, there are some people who have issues with Stuart for one reason or another. And I find that I'm collateral damage for some reviews who are sort of got issues to settle with Stuart. But, but I'm, I've been pleased with most of the reviews. I, yeah, I read one view in, uh, review in particular in a uh, newspaper that will go unnamed, where they uh, they seem to uh, focus, they seem to review review it kind of critically, but more so because they didn't like some of Stewart's like political views yeah. uh, or seeming political views instead of the actual content of the book. Which the book itself, you know, I I, I highly recommend it. It's very interesting and well written, and I think you know uh, this. Understanding Silicon Valley and the history of it is something that 
is unbelievably important, you know, unbelievably important for just understanding the world today. And I think Stuart's story is an ideal vehicle for understanding how the beats turned into, you know, the valley, how <laughs> the beats turned into the tech, the tech grows. Um, yeah. But, uh, well, well, John, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network. It was great yeah. talking to you. Uh, and I, I recommend uh, the uh, Whole Earth, The Many Lives of Stuart Brand uh, from Penguin Press. So thank you. Thanks, Cal, for reaching out to me. I enjoyed talking with you. Of course.